Michael R. Gordon is, without doubt, one of the best reporters I've ever known, and I've known many reporters over many years. Decades ago, he and I sat in the same bullpen in the New York Times Washington Bureau, where he covered defense, national security, and international affairs better than anyone else in town. He has reported on numerous conflicts, reporting both inside Washington, where decisions are made, and on the battlegrounds, where blood is spilled. He also has served as a Times bureau chief in Moscow and as a roving correspondent in London. He's currently a national security correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. A few years ago, he was writer in residence at FDD, where he worked on his most recent book, Degrade and Destroy, the inside story of the war against the Islamic State, from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. I'm pleased he's with us today. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, Michael, all right, you probably won't like this, but I'm going to ask you a few personal questions, not hard ones, but just start with this. How how did you get into the news business? Well, um... I was at uh, Columbia University uh, in uh, the graduate school program in philosophy. In philosophy, okay. Yeah. Not journalism, philosophy, okay. Yeah, well, you know, it was an outgrowth of the 60s. <laughs> so um, my uh, aspiration at that time was to teach in some university and in some rural environment and and just uh, live that kind of academic life. But, um, and I, and at Columbia, I actually met some really smart people like Sidney Morgenbesser, who is a legendary philosophy professor at uh, Columbia and, uh, uh, and really one of the few people I've ever encountered who deservedly could be considered a genius. You hear that in Washington. I haven't met any geniuses in Washington. <laughs> I eventually, um, I came to my senses and I repurposed myself uh, to get in, involved in the world. And uh, Columbia had a journalism school, yep. um, which had uh, um, a lot of people don't need to go to journalism school uh, because they already know how to do it. But I did uh, because I had been living this uh, more academic uh, life. And, and I remember the first day of, um, School there, they had a, a guy, Victor Gottlieb, I think, gave a press conference and they gave us 30 minutes to write up a story about it. And I remember sitting down at the manual typewriter there and thinking, well, how do I set the margins? <laughs> so I had a lot to, um, to learn. And one of the attractive features of the journalism school was it was a nine month program. And by that point, I'd been in school too long. So um, I, I made the switch and um that did not magically introduce me into 
uh, the world of the New York Times. I first job was for uh, Mallory Factor Associates, where I wrote press releases. He did plant promotions at savings banks. If you open an account, you get a plant. And then eventually I got a job for $8,000 a year covering the United Nations for the Interdependent, the monthly newspaper mm. of the United Nations Association. So that was how I, I kind of got my start. And then, and then how did you end up taking, why did you take up national security, defense policy, and eventually war reporting? It doesn't necessarily follow even from that. Well, I was always interested in, in foreign policy and international stuff. My uh, father had been a, the spokesman, actually, for the United Nations for the first 15 years. So I grew up with that kind really? of... Really? Huh. Yeah. The, when the United Nations was the United Nations. It was right. uh, more of an important factor in, in uh, world politics. And so I grew up in that kind of milieu. So I was always interested in that. Um, I had no intention at that point to cover military affairs per se. Uh, but after three years at uh, covering the United Nations, which was interesting, uh, that publication I was working for um, went belly up and I found a job at National Journal Magazine in Washington covering uh, trucking deregulation, although I branched out into railroad deregulation and other kinds of regulatory things because that was very much a big issue in political economy at the time working with bob samuelson who was their top economic sure. reporter and uh the national journal decided to establish a beat at the pentagon uh, and they asked for volunteers and notwithstanding the fact they didn't know anything about it i figured it had to be better than trucking deregulation so um i volunteered for it and that was the early 80s, the Reagan administration, there was a massive buildup. It was a happening thing. And and there was also a lot of arms control uh, going on with the Soviet Union then, which was another big focus of mine. So that led to five years, essentially, of um, national security, Pentagon and arms control uh, coverage uh, for National Journal magazine. And eventually, uh, an invitation from Bill Kovach, a great bureau chief at the New York Times, who uh, joined the uh, New York Times Washington Bureau and is a kind of a junior sidekick to uh, Leskel. Oh, yeah. Wow. Fascinating. And I can't believe I didn't know all that about you over all this time. Now, you've written four books on the U.S. wars in Iraq, the first three with General Bernard trainer. And he was a, a Marine Corps general who became a reporter and writer after retirement. And it was also with us in the Times Washington Bureau newsroom in that big bullpen back in the day. You you admired him greatly, didn't you? you did you learn a lot from him? Yes. I mean, Mick and I, um, Mick was hired at the Times because uh, Punch Salzberger had been a Marine and he knew Trainer, And Trainer was an unusual person. Yes, he had been a three-star Marine general, but he was very thoughtful. Not that Marines aren't thoughtful, but he was a thoughtful person and um, and had broad interests. And so I became friendly with him at the times we worked together. He loved to go teach at the Kennedy School and at Harvard. And uh, it was my idea uh, after the Gulf War for us to work together because I figured there was a good uh, synergy there. Um, I, 
you know, I've been in seven wars, not not from the Pentagon briefing room, but on the battlefield, really. Um, just cause, which was Panama, three Iraq wars, an Afghan war, Balkans war, um, with the Russian army in Chechnya, thanks to Vladimir mm. Putin, mm. and uh, perhaps something else. <laughs> but I'd not been in the military, yeah. and and Rick had, and I gave him uh, a whole, you know, yeah, dimension of understanding that I couldn't easily replicate. But we we um, were a good team, and um. You know, I had learned early on kind of the hard way at the New York Times that if you really wanted to, but it would have been true in any newspaper, really, that if you really wanted to cover a, a war in depth, you, it had to be done in a book. It can't be done through a newspaper. I had gone down to Panama for the Panama invasion, which was considered a big war at the time, lasted three days. And uh, and I came back with all sorts of stories I wanted to do along with Trainer and Steve Engelberg, who's now the uh, editor of ProPublica, mm. and we ran up against two things. One, the constraints of daily journalism, where anything over a thousand words or twelve hundred words or fifteen hundred words is considered, um, you know, an inordinate amount of space. But also a kind of a, an attitude that uh, uh, covering past events was. Uh, not necessarily so relant and I remember I would say, "Well, do you realize this happened in the Panama invasion?" And someone would say, "Well, that's that's historical." And there was no more dirty word in the newspaper business than historical. So I said, "Well, okay, the next time this happens, I'm not I'm going to um, give this the uh, treatment um, that it deserves. It will have to be a book." Yes, I'll write my newspaper articles, but then I'm going to peel off and do this in book form, notwithstanding the fact I had no idea how to write a book and never written one before. And I remember there was a notion at the time that uh, the days of military action was over. And I remember uh, Max Frankel, a very nice man and editor of the New York Times and a very decent person, making a joke to me. He said, I guess you'll be out of a job. Uh, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and I think a month or two later, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and we had a massive deployment of American forces to the Middle East for what became Desert Storm. And I said, well, that's going to be a book, and I'm going to do it with Trainer." And I uh, arranged with the then Bureau Chief, Hal Raines. I said, well, I'm going to take a uh, a six-month leave and write this book, and then six months became a year leave. Did they pay you? And did then, they pay you for that? For, for these no, they didn't give me a nickel, oh, and uh, they never did. Uh, they don't give you any money when you take a leave, nor do they even pay your health insurance after after the COBRA runs out. But um, after a year, they said time to come back. Well, I was only halfway into this book, and I learned the hard way how hard and it is to do a book, um, and. Um, and uh, a couple of years after that, I, uh, Mick and I finished the first book, The General's War, which still stands as, um, I think, um, the best account of the Persian Gulf War is still taught in the worst war colleges and looked in depth, not only at the ground war, but the air war and all sorts of things that happened in that conflict. You know, you mentioned Punch Sulzberger. For those who don't know, he was at that time the, the publisher and owner really at the New York Times. And I was going to say he's a very decent guy too until you told me he wouldn't 
pay you to go write a book and come back. I mean, the, the, no, no newspaper, no newspaper pays people to on book leave. That's not New York Times policy. It's not Wall Street Journal policy. They what, when they give you a book leave, what they're allowing you to do is uh, stop, um, get off the treadmill uh, for a certain period of time, and at your own expense, uh, undertake a project that when it's done, they will excerpt <laughs> with no compensation to you. Uh, but you will accept that anyway, because it uh, draws attention to your book. And that's how the, but and, and the, um, a little more seriously, um, uh, the two work together as I was reflecting back on my um, a career just the other day to myself. I mean, it was the newspapers that got me to the war. Yeah. Um, you can't just go as a book writer to a war if you have any common sense, because you can get hurt in a war. Um, uh, someone needs to be responsible for you and for your family. And and you. so the newspaper gets you to where the action is. It got me to Mosul in 2017. It got me to all three of the Iraq wars and the Afghan war and all sorts of things. And, and covering the day-to-day for the newspapers. Um, but uh, the books enable you to build on that daily coverage and um, explain what was really happening behind the scenes and really develop your expertise and sources. Because it's easier to build sources when you say, hey, this is for books going to come out in a couple of years from now. Uh, please tell me everything that happened. It's, it's, it's more challenging to do that when you say hi tell me everything's going to happen i'm going to put this newspaper tomorrow and the um so the two kind of work together newspaper got me to the to the wars and around the world and to the state department coverage and the books enabled me to uh fully exploit my uh, what i learned and by covering those conflicts and to develop some more expertise that in turn made me a better reporter so i I think it's good to kind of go back and forth and have one foot in each camp, daily journalism and um, and history writing. Really. Well, I, you know, talk about that, because it's often said that journalists write a rough draft of history. But that's really not true in your case, because you write you write history. There's nothing rough about your drafts. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, do you see yourself as an historian? You know, what I'm old fashioned. I don't say a historian. Do You see yourself as an historian at least as much as as a journalist or a reporter? Yes, I feel like um, I feel like I have, uh, as I said, a, a foot in each camp. And, and one thing uh, Mick Trainer, uh, the point he used to make, and I, I agreed with that, is he said, look, when we did our book on Desert Storm, uh, General's War, when we did our book on the invasion of Iraq, Cobra II, when we did our invasion on the whole history of the American occupation of Iraq, the end game, which preceded the book I did solo, Degrade and Destroy on Fighting ISIS. But when we did those first three books, Trainer's perspective is, look, we're not going to be the first book out of the, out of the blocks. We don't want to be. We don't want to rush a partial, um, flawed account of what happened into the public domain. We want to write, take a little extra time and write the book that endures and get to the ground truth to the extent that's possible, which is very complicated in these, these events that uh, where they have so many different participants and people recall things differently and takes some of the stuff's classified, takes time to get at that. 
Um, you want to get the enemy perspective as well, the U.S. perspective. So our goal was always to try to write the book that endured and would stand the test of time. And it might not be, the you know, there'll be one or two books out first, but five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, that'll be one of the books. There's no one book people can read about any conflict, but that'll certainly be one of the books people have to read if they really want to understand what happened. And I believe we met that test. All three of our trainer and I's books um, are are still in print and they're still the go-to books for those conflicts. In this case, um, um, there is no other book because there was no other author who wanted to take on uh, the thankless task of spending, in this case, six years putting together a history of what happened in the fight against the Islamic State. Um, I know of no other person who's even attempted that. And by the way, the Pentagon itself has not done a lessons learned on this conflict or a history of this conflict, nor do I think they're even planning to. So um, in this point, it's, as I tell people, this is the best book on the conflict because it's actually the only book on this conflict. Well, the, the Pentagon should be doing that, but they can use your book. I, uh, people should degrade and destroy the people should read it. I, I'm holding it up. I know this is only by audio, so you have to, people have to take my word for it. But uh, if they could see me, they, they'd see me holding it up. A lot of questions on it. Um, and, and I'll start with, with this. Obama confident, confidently announced the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq in 2011. And he proclaimed the tide of war is receding. I remember that very well. Was there any evidence that actually led him to that conclusion? Or was that just like, you know, popped out of his brain or wishful thinking or, or his, 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 his great view of the universe? How, why would he say that? Well, it's an important to be fair to President Obama, who, who made some mistakes, but also did some some things right. And uh, what I've tried to do in all of these books is not to be ideological. And you're not. And to, you know, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat. And but just to, to give a fair accounting of what President Obama did right and wrong, what President Trump did right and wrong, what President Biden did right and wrong, because this book encompasses all three administrations. Um, in the case of Iraq, uh, you have to remember that uh, Barack Obama campaigned on a platform of ending the war in Iraq. And I went out to see him when he was a candidate yeah. in Chicago. 2007. And, uh, and um, I saw him with another then New York Times reporter, Jeff Zeleny, now at uh, CNN. And uh, he was going to bring the war in Iraq to a responsible end. And initially he was talking about doing it 16 months. Well, when he got in office, that 16-month timeline went out the window because that was never uh, feasible. But uh, his goal was to bring the war to an end. And uh, but he was persuaded that um, U.S. forces might need to stay to secure that the gains. And there were gains because the surge had worked and in uh, setting back Al Qaeda in Iraq under David Petraeus and Ray Odierno. He, he was persuaded to and Lloyd Austin, but he had persuaded to uh, possibly leave some troops behind to train and equip and mentor the Iraqi army. The eventual force the Obama administration decided on was 5,000, 3,500 based in Iraq and 1,500 return, return, 
rotating force, which was a little less than the 20,000 plus that Lloyd Austin had recommended when he was Iraq commander under Obama. But that was the, that's what they were prepared to do. But uh, the Obama administration had a, a high bar for achieving that. They wanted the Iraqi government not merely to agree to uh, uh, a diplomatic understanding that would enable U.S. troops to stay, but to submit this to their parliament for approval. And Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki, who was a very difficult customer to deal with and is making a bit of a political comeback in Iraq now, um, uh, didn't want to take it to the parliament. And in fact, there were divisions in the American camp about the necessity of taking it back to the parliament. One person who argued that wasn't necessary was a guy called Brett McGurk, who was, uh, then had been brought in as a, to help with the negotiation. He's now the senior director for the Middle East and in the, in the uh, Biden administration. Um, but, um, you know, the White House took the position to make the uh, legal protections for American troops airtight. Uh, it should be approved by the parliament, and that would show the whole country was behind it. It was a demand, by the way, the Bush administration had not insisted on when it secured its SOPA. And the talks really foundered over that. And as a consequence of their inability to agree on this point and the lack of chemistry between Obama and Maliki, who only talked twice in during this whole negotiation to begin it and to end it, um, the talks failed. When the talks failed, U.S. troops left. At that point, President Obama still hoped that Iraq could be reasonably stable and secure, absent the presence of American forces. However, people in the U.S. military and the Iraqi military uh, saw trouble ahead. I mean, am I wrong to suggest that it's, it was too much to ask Maliki to push this through Parliament, do it publicly? You're saying you're going to have an American occupant. You want to do this? It would have been better to just quietly say, okay. Combat mission's over. We're leaving. By the way, we're going to leave behind some troops, as you say, to train, assist, to guide, provide close air support, whatever is necessary. But just, you know, not too many. We can do this. And maybe it's 10,000. Maybe it's 5,000. Um, but we're, but you're not going to push Maliki into an uncomfortable situation. And, 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 and was there anybody telling Obama, hey, pull the plug. It'll be fine. Uh, these guys can handle without us. We're, we're really done here. Well, first off, uh, you can't lay this all on Obama. The Pentagon General Council and people uh, like that wanted absolutely airtight immunities from American troops from prosecution. And uh, there was a sense uh, among some that um, the U.S. had turned the corner in Iraq against al-Qaeda in Iraq and, and those foes. And so if U.S. troops were to remain, uh, the Iraqis would have to meet our uh, the Obama administration's terms, which was, uh, you know, their stiff requirements for leaving forces there. I mean, there were, before the negotiations happened, the U.S. inventory, U.S. military did an inventory of what was called the Iraqi military's capability gaps, and they were considerable. So, what happened was after these talks faltered um, and uh, both sides proclaimed success as if the a failed negotiation was had been their goal all along, U.S. troops left. But David Petraeus, who was then at 
the CIA, and had been the Iraq commander, came up with a plan B. And his plan B was, okay, we're not going to have a SOFA status of forces agreement approved by the Iraqi parliament, and most U.S. forces will have to leave. So we'll insert some clandestinely, and they'll be seconded to the embassy, and they'll they'll be under CIA cover, and there won't be thousands of them. There'll, there'll be some small complement that will help the Iraqis um, assess intelligence and um, uh, troubleshoot some of their problems. The Iraqis will still do the main fighting, but we'll be providing enablers. And Petraeus and Hillary Clinton supported this. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, she was um, didn't have the lead for the negotiations with Iraq. Um, Vice President Biden did, but she was concerned about an environment in which there would be no U.S. troops because civilians were going to stay there from the State Department. And so... They supported this. Uh, Petraeus even went to Baghdad in December of um, uh, 2011 to to uh, discuss it further with Maliki to try to get him to sign a letter requesting this. And Maliki just balked. He always the check was always in the mail, and the check never came. He never signed it. Now, why was that? Um, was it because Maliki didn't want to acknowledge? He had postured himself as a strong man. He didn't want to acknowledge that he couldn't do it by himself. Was it because he was susceptible to Iranian influence at that point? Or was it because the U.S. wasn't offering enough uh, in return for the political risks he would have to take by inviting American troops in, even on a covert uh, basis? I don't think we'll, we'll ever know, but that never really happened. So the American forces left. And, you know, the... Um, some of the people in the Obama administration, including uh, who now are populate the high levels of the Biden administration, um, like uh, now Secretary of State Blinken, used to argue, well, it didn't really matter. The troops wouldn't have made a difference. What could a few thousand troops do? Uh, a few thousand troops would have made a difference uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, they would have given the U.S. more insight into what was happening inside the Iraqi forces, which began to deteriorate absent our training. And um, they would have given us a better opportunity to push back against Maliki's sectarian policies and maybe not entirely successfully, but to some extent, and also his practice of putting cronies in high command, they would have given us better warning and more insight into this emerging ISIS threat. So it, it would have made some difference, but it was not to be, and uh, that set the stage for um, U.S. forces to return in 2014, but although in a different role. All right, total digression, but I can't resist. Just very quickly, would would it not have made sense for Biden to say, "I know what to do in Afghanistan. We couldn't do it in Iraq, but we can do it here. We, I will withdraw, but there'll be a small contingent of forces uh, reporting to the CIA left behind." to a guide, to assist, to provide intelligence, surveillance, close air support. And if that had happened, maybe you wouldn't have had the total meltdown we saw a year ago in Afghanistan. Should that not have occurred to him? So Afghanistan is a different situation and a very controversial issue, even within the military. If you go to the U.S. military, you'll find people like Frank McKenzie, the former CENTCOM commander, who advocated along with Scotty Miller, 
the in-country commander, along with General Milley. I broke this story for the Wall Street Journal with uh, colleagues uh, that they wanted to keep a force of 2,500 U.S. troops uh, indefinitely and redouble efforts uh, at negotiation. And they thought, along with thousands more NATO troops who are already there, that they could pretty much hold the line. Now, you weren't going to win the war, but you basically were going to hold the line and achieve a, a perpetual stalemate. Um, the counterargument to that from uh, the White House was that, well, if we do that, the, pan- the Taliban will rip up the Doha agreement that uh, President Trump pushed through. <laughs> It was Trump that pushed through the agreement for American forces to leave. It was Trump that told the the Taliban that American troops would be gone and would would not leave behind any kind of the presence that you would want. It was Trump that got rid of Mark Esper when Mark Esper wanted to keep keep the troop levels at more like 4,000. So by the time Biden came in, he had been dug in a hole by the Trump administration. But notwithstanding, there was nothing that required a Biden to fulfill Trump's agreement. and But the argument the White House made was the Taliban will gin up the war and then we'll be in the position of having to reinforce to a certain degree and add thousands of troops. I mean, this is a counterfactual. We'll never know the answer. Um, but I think Biden's um, belief was that, and you know, this really was a policy decided by President Biden, is that the uh, Al-Qaeda had been the mission of going after al-Qaeda had been achieved in Afghanistan, was costing us $40 billion a year. Uh, victory was elusive. Um, and we had been been there 20 years. And why perpetuate it? The counter-argument to that is it's wrong to think of these conflicts as uh, forever wars. Instead of putting it in that framework, uh, think of the U.S., presence there is forward deployed troops in an unstable region where terrorists sometimes emerge. Uh, This is a debate historians will be carrying out uh, for years. Um, There was one other element that made Afghanistan a more difficult conflict than fighting ISIS. Uh, The Taliban had an external sanctuary in um, Pakistan. Very hard to wage a counterinsurgency against an adversary that has a sanctuary. In the case of ISIS, Um, President Obama decided pretty early on that that we weren't going to give them a sanctuary in Syria and that uh, while they had fought into Iraq, the campaign was going to have to extend initially by air and eventually on the ground into Syria as well. So while we've been somewhat critical of the Obama administration's decisions not to negotiate harder on a sofa that would allow troops to stay, we have to acknowledge that... um, uh, the Obama administration made a correct decision and not giving ISIS a sanction, sanctuary in Syria and deciding early on that it w- we'd have to go after ISIS in Iraq and in Syria itself. Notwithstanding, there was no sovereign government there that we were working with or recognized or was prepared to cooperate with. Right. That was because of the, the, the civil war in, in, in Syria, which followed Obama not enforcing his red line on the use of chemical weapons by the by the, well, the civil regime. war the civil war predated yeah. the the non-enforcement of the red line right. i covered that yeah. in the state department it was on the plane with Kerry when all of that went down but um 
uh, and the Civil War might not have been ended by the enforcement of the red line. But yes, the decision not to enforce the red line certainly was a milestone in how that conflict unfolded. Was the the rise of ISIS, of the Islamic State in the Levant, was that foreseen by any in the intelligence community? And and, and briefly, if you can, why did the Islamic State split from al-Qaeda? So ISIS, the Islamic State, is really al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, you know, um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was Abu Dua. So he, the al-Qaeda in Iraq had been the foremost Sunni insurgent adversary of the U.S. during the years U.S. occupied Iraq. And um, they were down, but not entirely out by the time U.S. forces left. And uh, they were already making pretensions to becoming something more than just a terrorist organization. They had dubbed themselves the Islamic State of Iraq, and there were people in the um, in the American government, the military thought, oh, they're just branding themselves. But actually, they were interested in governance, governance of a kind of a caliphate in Iraq. Well, this evolved into ISIS, uh, and they took advantage of all the mayhem and chaos in in, in Syria and moved into there as well and, and uh, was able to repurpose many of the jihadists who came there to fight um, Assad and grew as an organization. Uh, but they did split with um, uh, what was oh, then okay. the Al Qaeda mm-hmm. affiliate um, in in Syria, um, uh, Jabhat al Nusra, which also now rebranded itself and uh, tried to cast itself more as a nationalist organization. But they did split with them, and some of this had to do with um, Baghdadi's own aspirations and goals and. And uh, determination to build the caliphate, not merely by um, uh, taking on um, uh, Westerners who were in the Middle East, but by uh, killing (laughs) Shia, uh, which was uh, something Al-Qaeda Central was not encouraging. So, um, uh, So they did split and they became a force now. This was not a surprise to people who were following this closely. In the U.S. Embassy in 2013, uh, David Whitty, who was advising the Counterterrorism Service and has just written a book on Egypt and written a book on the the Counterterrorism Service, he saw the growth of the uh, ISIS forces. And interestingly, in February 2014, Chris Donahue, then the head of the Delta Force, then Colonel Chris Donahue, um, now he's more famous as the last man out in Kabul, and he's now the three-star commander of the 18th Airborne Corps in Europe, which has been working on Ukraine and trying to help them. Uh, he went to Iraq, along with Mike Nigato, who was then the head of the special operations uh, component of CENTCOM. And they saw that, number one, the counterterrorism service was overmatched and couldn't handle this ISIS threat, and that ISIS was coming on like a locomotive. It was much more um, capable than Al-Qaeda in Iraq had been. This all got reported up the chain of command in February 2014. And there were, but nothing much happened in Washington. So it took the shock of uh, the fall of Mosul in June of 2014 for the White House to get engaged. But Obama didn't quite get the memos or didn't quite believe them, right? Because he called the Islamic State ISIS, he called it a JV team. 
And then in 2014, he said, it's time to turn the page on wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He said, this is how wars end in the 21st century. I did, Again, I don't see any evidentiary basis for that assertion, but it also sounds like this was not what he was learning or should have been learning from the intelligence community and from the military. Well, I'm not sure the intelligence community did a very good job. The CIA was focused primarily on Syria, but the Delta Force commander and the head of the Special Operations Command um, certainly were alerting their chains of command to the threat. I think the the assumption at the White House was that, look, the Iraqis had an army. They had a counterterrorism service. They had the federal police. They had they had forces that we had trained and equipped at enormous expense. Surely these forces should be sufficient to deal with um, the Islamic State guys and technical vehicles and, and suicide car bombs. And indeed, there were nominally uh, two divisions in Mosul when it was attacked, but uh, the corrosion of the Iraqi forces was not visible to um, officials in Washington, and it wasn't visible because we had no advisors with them. So I think the assumption was ISIS coming on, the Iraqis will deal with it, and then it was a rude awakening when they turned out not to be capable of dealing with it. Well, this is something you explained rather well, but I, and I think it's a really important concept, which it is you've, you've got capable forces in Iraq, you've got capable forces in Afghanistan, but in both cases up to a point, because what we were doing was we were we were we were helping these forces with technology they didn't have, with repairs of helicopters that they needed, they couldn't do themselves, certainly true in Afghanistan, with uh, close air support, with drones. In other words, they were they were good, but they but the, the way it was set up, they 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 needed the backing of the U.S. They needed an economy of force operation. And in fact, exactly that is still going on to this day. People don't know much about it in Syria and Iraq. They know a little bit about it. This is the whole concept, I think, you tell me if I'm wrong, of by the by, with, and through strategy, which emerged decades ago within the special forces community. But it's the idea of fighting with and through proxies, but they do depend on you. And if you want them to operate on their own, that's not so easy. They have to be weaned off their dependence on you for for capabilities, mission planning, also targeting all sorts of things that they simply don't have. Would you, would you disagree with me on that? Well, first off, the Iraqis, even when U.S. troops left, they still had Western contractors to help with them, their maintenance and everything. So it wasn't like Afghanistan when the contractors left, too. So the Western contractors stayed behind because it was presumed to be a safe environment. Unfortunately, when ISIS attacked the Mosul fell, the Western contractors... 2014, right? No, 15. Had, no, we have 14. Had, had, ...headed to the exit. Yeah. And that left the Iraqis without the maintenance that they needed. So there is a problem with the way the U.S. approaches arms sales, which is we sell them very sophisticated arms, M1 tanks, F-16s, and the like... Contractors come in to uh, take care of it all. But then if there's a, a huge crisis in the war, the contractors deport and all this great stuff we gave them uh, doesn't work so well. <laughs> Back to buy with and through. Um, so, you know, look, in retrospect, it would have been better if we had uh, kept something there, um, you know, and uh, 
but we've already discussed um yeah you know how how problematic that was and uh while i i personally think it was the the obama administration made a mistake and how they handled the sofa talks it just has to be noted that maliki was a difficult person he didn't like to ask for help he didn't sign the letter petraeus asked him to sign he he was uh, took him a while to eventually uh, go to the White House just in, in his conversations in, in the spring of um, 2014 and say we need some form of assistance. So, um, it, it, you know, and he was exacerbating the tensions in Iraqi society by going after Sunni members of his government, which was making um, northern and western Iraq a more receptive environment for ISIS. So a lot of this isn't on the U.S., a lot of this is the fault of the Iraqi leadership themselves. Yeah, so in 2014, Operation Inherent Resolve was launched. That's the U.S. military's operational name for the international military invention against the Islamic State, ISIL, ISIS, call it what you want, uh, including both a campaign in Iraq and a campaign in Syria and, and, a, and, a, and a related campaign in Libya. I don't think most people know that. By the way, you mentioned that Inherent Resolve is an ungainly name. Actually, I don't even understand what it means. What what here inheres? Uh, why is it inherent resolve? Where they come up with that? Well, um, a major uh, military uh, intervention um, is what the Pentagon likes to call a named operation. It has its own name, and it, it that be, it becomes an organizing principle. It's good in going to the Congress for funding. It means it's not just a one-off, it's going to be an extended campaign. So the Pentagon decided they needed to make um, this intervention was significant enough that it should be a named operation. But you can't just name things in the American military. There's a naming convention. And CENTCOM had, um, it was stipulated that the names had to begin with certain letters and it could only be a limited number of words. Um, and so they came up with a number of, uh, candidates for names. Uh, one was Iraqi resolve, even though what happened in Mosul was the antithesis of resolve. Another was Iraqi unity, even though Iraq was in a state of disunity, uh, because of the divisions between the Sunni and the Shia, which ISIS was exploiting and Maliki had aggravated. And then somebody figured, Hey, we're probably going to have to fight in Syria too, or at least we're going to have to bomb it because that's where Raqqa is. And that's the ISIS capital. Oh, guess we can't call it Iraqi. Hmm. We need to start something with an I. Uh, inherent resolve. Okay. So it became um, inherent resolve. No one's quite sure exactly um, what that meant, but it certainly was not offensive to any of the local partners. And it was, you know, politically acceptable name, and that's what it became, Operation Inherent Resolve, or OIR, a campaign that um, virtually no Americans know by that name, but um, but that's what the counter-ISIS fight uh, was uh, dubbed. Just spend uh, just a couple of minutes telling us about the caliphate itself, what life was like there, the, the population, and maybe the last days of Raqqa. I'm jumping ahead, but it's... I, I, there, we only have so much time, and I want to get in a lot of these <laughs> thoughts on this. Well, yeah. One one of the challenges in doing a book like this is uh, I wasn't able to interview ISIS commanders 
um, or Baghdadi or people like that um, about uh, about how they were fighting the war. So you have to, but you can base a lot on their writings. And also, I did talk to people who in Mosul who had lived under ISIS. So they described to me what it was like. And I talked to people who had lived under ISIS in Hawija, um, which is a, a town in Iraq. And basically, so this is ISIS ran a state. It was a statelet. They had it was very administrative uh, functions. They had taxes. They had marriages. They had they, they controlled all aspects of life and they, it was a big paperwork trail it was bureaucratic in, in many respects and but they were they had all sorts of requirements remember these are sunnis sometimes imposing these on fellow sunnis you had to turn your trousers up a certain way i interviewed people who had been hostages in Hawija and were rescued and from isis and almost certain death and they told me about it you had to when you prayed you had to hold your fingers a certain way there were all sorts of very specific requirements for that smoking was banned al-qaeda in iraq did the same thing once i was on an operation in bakuba to take that town back from aqi and i saw people smoking on the sidewalk and i thought okay they're they fled so i I thought they should have changed the name of that operation from arrowhead ripper to thank you for smoking (laughs) but um but the um so they and, and it was corrupt too. So I was in Mosul. I went to a refugee camp. This is not in the book, and um, and I met a family in a Kurdish refugee camp, and the guy had been a broadcaster for an Islamic radio station. Um, he was a devout Muslim with a young wife and some kids, and uh, and his youngest daughter had a horrible um, illness and injury. And he needed to get her out of Mosul because there was no proper medical care there and, 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 and try to get her to the West so she'd survive. Uh, she didn't survive. She died in the camp. But, the, um, but he was trying. And so he told me the story. You know, he, he went to uh, ISIS and my daughter's in Kadiah. We've got to get out. And they made him sign over his house to them. He basically had a bribe his way out out of ISIS's clutches as a devout Muslim to get his, you know, daughter to some what he hoped would be medical care in and in, in Kurdistan. And so, you know, there are a lot of cruelties uh, going on there, not to mention the sexual servitude they subjected Yazidi women to. And uh, they they grew uh in strength thanks to thousands of of foreign volunteers who didn't speak the language always, but they, it was the volunteers who they used for ISIS's precision guided weapon, the suicide car bomb. They didn't have computers to direct their weapons. They had humans. And they, I've seen, I actually saw one in Sinjar that came right at a, a Kurdish formation I was at. And, um, and they, these people would load these uh, things up with munitions and, and they'd, put armor all around the driver because the driver has to survive till he gets to the target. And they relied a lot on that. And they had a devastating effect because it was basically a militant uh, PGM. Uh, So it was, you know, they fought hard um, and it was uh, more of an army than a terrorist band. They had um, a little drone fleet 
that uh, dropped uh, grenades. They fought from prepared positions. They'd go in a house, knock out the walls, stand back from the windows so you couldn't see them and fire, try to create kill zones that they lure Iraqi forces in. Um, it was um, pretty proficient at what it did, and it took a lot of effort to dig them out of Mosul. Yeah, I'll just remind people, PGM means precision-guided munitions or precision-guided missiles, and here it's, the human is is providing the precision rather than a gyroscope or a computer. I, I, one very broad question I want to ask you, because I want to make sure we get it in, even though there's a lot of other questions I'd love to ask. If contrast the this war under Obama and then under Trump, how they how they were different in their their approach to it. So, um, when the war began and U.S. forces returned to Iraq, U.S. advisors initially were um, limited to operating within the confines of large military bases, but over a period of a couple of years, um, that policy evolved and it had to evolve because otherwise it would have been feasible to take Mosul. So by the time Obama left office, uh, U.S. advisors could accompany Iraqi forces in the field, which was essential. The U.S. air campaign had evolved considerably from something that was focused on the front lines to carrying out deep strikes against finance, uh, what they called bulk cash storage, you and I would call a bank or um, ISIS oil uh, transport or ISIS command and control, um, the command structure had evolved. So a lot of things happened. Oh, it took a couple of years for all of these adaptations to occur, but they did occur by the end of December uh, 2016. So uh, President Obama handed over to the Trump administration a buy with and through strategy. It's called buy with and through because the fighting is done by proxies multiple proxies who didn't all get along, Iraqi security forces, Kurdish Peshmerga, Syrian democratic forces, with American and coalition support through a policy and legal framework. This was all handed over to Trump. Trump had uh, talked during the campaign about how he was going to take the gloves off and and um, and uh, bomb the heck out of uh, the insurgents and their families, except he didn't use the word heck. And, um, and uh, basically un- unleash the fury. Um, but, um, uh, and the implication was he was gonna change the rules of engagement. None of that happened. The ROE were never changed. I talked to all the commanders. But one thing did change. Uh, under the uh, Obama administration, there was a lot of scrutiny of military operations by the NSC, by Susan Rice. Concern would being, well, we could get caught in a quagmire. There, almost as concerned about getting drawn into the conflict as they were about winning. And uh, so there was, was, critics would call this micromanagement. The Obama administration would call this scrutiny. When Trump came in and H.R. McMaster was the national security advisor, he said, hey, I don't need to sit here in the White House and determine how many helicopters there should be in Syria, uh, which was actually something the Obama administration did do. It was three for 72 hours at a time. Um, I'm leaving all of that up to the Pentagon and the commanders. So the upshot was Trump essentially executed Obama's strategy, but sometimes he executed it more efficiently than Obama himself, simply by being absent from any of the decisions 
about developments on the battlefield and uh, leaving a lot of those details up to the military. There are two big exceptions to this, which was Syria and Trump's two efforts to yank U.S. forces out of Syria without consulting with any American military commanders and against their advice. That caused a lot of chaos. But apart from that, I think Trump, there was a lot of continuity, uh, to put it more diplomatically, between the Obama and Trump administrations when it came to executing uh, the strategy. The Trump administration didn't change the strategy. Yeah, and and Trump had, had, did want to pull everybody out of, of out of Syria and got eventually got talked out of it, and that's and, and the Syria mission, which continues to this day, is is very much by with and through, and an example of economy of force. Again, a very small contingent of Americans who are helping uh, a large number of allies, uh, Kurdish, Arab led, and, and and Arab, and working effectively. I've always thought that. All the presidents should be taking credit for it rather than saying, how do we how do we end it? Because that is a, a useful way of, of of fighting these wars. Do you disagree? Well, no, I, I um, so the Biden administration appears to learn the lesson from the Obama administration's 2011 withdrawal uh, from Iraq. And we have twenty five hundred troops in Iraq now and about another nine hundred in Syria. And it. It, there doesn't seem to be any plans to for them to depart, which is understandable because um, ISIS remnants of ISIS are still around. There's still a refugee camp with ISIS families birthing a new generation of fighters at El Hol that has perhaps fifty or sixty thousand people in it. There's still prisons in Syria with ISIS fighters. Um, it's not entirely resolved, although you'd have to say the group's defeated. But Cliff, one interesting thing is happening. Who is the U.S. principal adversary in Syria now? It ain't ISIS. It's Iran, and and, and it was just and it was Russia for for a very short time too. Well, the Wagner Group. Well, it's still Russia in the sense that yeah, Russia is still yeah. demanding that the U.S. vacate Al Tamp Garrison. Now they're not trying to hurt Americans, but Iran is, and there were a number of recent attacks to include yesterday. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, we're recording this on Thursday, I'll say. So we, so there was, we talk, August uh, 24th. There have been a number of um, Iranian-inspired or directed attacks involving uh, Iranian-backed militias against the Al-Tamp garrison in southeast Syria, and also some rocket attacks against um, a place called Green Village, which is basically the Conoco uh, compound in eastern Syria, where American forces are. And the oil is. And what happened? The Americans called in Apaches. Uh, and artillery to fight back. And, and the CENTCOM said today, I'm down at CENTCOM now, uh, that they had uh, they killed three or four of these uh, militant fighters. So this is skirmishing uh, between Iranian-backed elements and American forces. Um, it happened during the Trump years. It's continuing in the Biden years. And it's happening even as the two countries are edging closer to restoring the Iran nuclear agreement and will probably continue even if that agreement is restored and maybe even increase. Yeah, we can. I, I, all right. I won't open up that entire can of worms or a couple more questions. I got to ask you uh, before, before you conclude, I want to be respectful of your time. One is to this day, it's, it's, it's controversial 
the decision to work hand in glove. You mentioned with the YPG, you mentioned them very briefly, and we should tell people YPG is a, a Syrian Kurdish group, Kurdish group based in Syria, with ties to the PKK, which is a Kurdish terrorist group, USO defines it, primarily based in the mountainous regions of Turkey. Now, the argument in favor of using the YPG, I, I think, is that they were, in fact, they are damn good fighters, and there were no other forces the Americans could rely on to lead the Syrian de- democratic forces, the, uh, the, the, the SDF, which are largely Syrian Arab. Um, the, of course, the, the argument against it is the Turks are furious, and you're, and you're working with terrorists, and people are going to say, look at you, you're working with people you agree are, are terrorists. I've talked to military people, I'm sure you have much more than I have, who say, yeah, I work with the YPG. Anytime you work with the Kurds, uh, you're in good hands, and I, and, and, uh, you, uh, and, and I support that. So there's a backstory here that I reveal in the book for the first time in a chapter called Tell an Anvil. And when Chris Donahue, then Colonel Chris Donahue, head of the Delta Force, uh, led his element back to northern Iraq uh, right after the fall of Mosul, he had a, a meeting in August of 2014, brokered through Kurdish um, uh, officials in Suleimania, Lahore Talibani. And it was um, with this YPG element that the U.S. did not know well. And it led to a meeting between Colonel Donahue and General Maslou who is now the head uh, commander of the SDF. And Maslum had met earlier in that very day with Qasem Soleimani, because the Iranians were also trying to get in on this and win him over. Uh, he met with uh, the Americans. And what Donahue's concept was, look, we need to have a way to stop the flow of foreign fighters who are coming into Iraq and into Syria. That requires a partner on the ground. Well, the Iraqi forces then were in shambles. And it would take them a couple of years to get back up to Mosul. They certainly weren't going to go to Syria. The Kurdish Peshmerga in Iraq were also on their heels and had limited capacity and had vacated Sinjar. So he needed a force. And so he began talking to Muslim and they eventually became, uh, due to the dearth of other partners, um, the uh, partner of choice. And they acquitted themselves well in Kobani. Donnie had a plan, though. And it was to sweep uh, west until the Euphrates and then head south to Raqqa. And the reason he thought Euphrates should be the limit of advance was he understood that if you went too much beyond that, you'd begin to aggravate the Turks, our NATO ally, who thought of the YPG as basically an element of this terrorist PKK force. and he also had a requirement for Muslim. He could not try to use the American support to create a statelet in northern Syria that would extend all the way out to Africa. Um, you know, he couldn't because that would certainly trigger the Turks. As events evolved for a whole variety of reasons, um, the U.S. ended up with um, supporting people in Mandage, west of the Euphrates and the Turks became aggrieved and they intervened and they're threatening to intervene yet again. And this has become a very delicate issue. Um, The military supported working with the YPG and arming them with heavier weapons because that's what you needed to take Raqqa. 
it was a big debate in the Obama administration about it. Tony Blinken supported arming them. Brett McGurk supported arming them. John Kerry eventually supported arming them. The Pentagon, of course, did. Samantha Power, interestingly, who was then the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, opposed it because she thought the uh, YPG was too close to the PKK. I think John Bass, U.S. ambassador in Ankara, who's now in the State Department, had some concerns. And also she was concerned about the implications of Kurdish, Syrian Kurds ruling over Arab areas in Syria. As it turned out, though, they were the only partner we had. They worked pretty effectively. The U.S. has a a good relationship with them to this day, but it also has a very fraught relationship with uh, Turkey, which at this moment, um, it could uh, decide to intervene even more uh, deeply in uh, in in uh, Syria uh, to um, go after this group, and that has potential to unravel uh, some of the gains that have been made. So it's a geopolitical decision. Interestingly, uh, Trump endorsed it. It took him a few months uh, to get around to it. There's a. I want to tell you a little backstory here, rather quickly. I know we're using up time. But when President Obama was so methodical and careful, this decision about arming the YPG um, to take Raqqa was not made until literally the last week of his presidency. I mean, uh, and uh, just the inauguration is days away. (laughs) And so he decides, okay, we're going to do this. Well, a, it can't happen that fast. And B, it was going to be the successor that had to live with the strategic consequences, including the unhappiness at Ankara. So President Obama, to his credit, says, look, let's check with the incoming team and see if they're comfortable with this. If they are, I'll make the call and we'll just move ahead. Well, um, uh, Susan Rice uh, checked with Mike Flynn and he said, no, we'll make the call. Um, and so um, Obama was fine with that. But he said, you know, I'm going to give President Trump, the incoming President Trump, my advice. Um, Next time I see him, well, he was only going to see him one more time. And it was when they rode in the limousine to the inauguration swearing in. (laughs) Wow. And so he told, that's when I'm going to tell him what I, we should arm the YPG. And that's important to keep the momentum going against ISIS. So I asked him, um, a former Obama administration official said, did that happen? Because Obama said he was going to do it. Did that happen? And that person got back to me for the book and said, yes, it did. And uh, Obama gave Trump then his advice that he should arm the YPG. After the inauguration, Trump was sitting in the inaugural stands with his choice for a defense secretary, Jim Mattis. And they're watching the parades and the, you know, Whoever's whoever, the marching bands and things like that. And during this, Trump turns to Mattis and says, you know, the Kurds are great fighters. <laughs> and Mattis, it just comes out of the blue. Mattis has no idea. Okay. Yeah. The Kurds are great fighters. All right. He, he didn't understand that uh, what Trump was basically reflecting was the advice Obama had given him in the limousine. He knew nothing about that. But uh, eventually, Trump endorsed that same decision. 
And by the way, Mattis eventually became very tied to these Kurdish fighters. When Mattis resigned, part of the reason, maybe the main reason he cited others have other ideas in this was, hey, we're not going to abandon those who have been fighting with us and leave them to their fate. And that meant the YPG, most notably, no? Well, the irony here is um, uh, Trump, uh, after talking to Erdogan, made the first of uh, a number of impetuous decisions to leave Syria, which would have meant abandoning the very people he thought was so great to arm. Made this decision without consulting Mattis, who thought it was important not to end the fight at this point. And Mattis, at this, by this stage, was just frustrated that he was Secretary of Defense and the president wasn't even soliciting his advice. And this came on top of an episode in which Mattis had, was trying to make General Goldfein the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was the Air Force um, Chief of Staff, and he thought he should be the chairman. And Trump, without consulting with Mattis, uh, picked uh, Mark Milley instead. Um, and so um, I think at that point, Mattis said, wow, I, uh, they're not listening to me on Syria. They're not even soliciting my input on who should be the next chairman, the guy I have to work with. Uh, I think that at that stage, he understood it was time to go. All right. Last subject, I promise. The Islamic State, at the end of all this, loses its territory, loses its caliphate. But the organization's never been defeated. It's, it's, it's still what the U.S. Uh, Defense Intelligence Agency calls a cohesive organization. In other words, it has been degraded, but it's not been destroyed. So maybe just talk a little bit about where it is and what it's doing now. Well, I would argue it's been defeated. I mean, they've lost their capital. They lost their caliphate. Baghdad was killed. His successor was killed. I think the successor to his successor was killed. Um, um, they're you know, it's hard to extinguish an idea and they become the voice of um, Sunni grievance and and resistance to sectarian policies that they perceive in Baghdad. And so, yes, if every several months, the Pentagon Inspector General puts out a report on Operation Inherent Resolve, which continues to this day, although the um, the guy that the U.S. is now has a two star, not a three star in charge of it. And uh, the Iraqi forces are still going after ISIS remnants in the Hamran Mountains and elsewhere in Iraq on a monthly basis, week in, week out. And they're still skirmishing in Syria. Some of the ISIS guys are in Russian and Syria-controlled territory, not U.S.-controlled territory. Not much we can do about that, um, except go after their leadership, which they have done. That required venturing into airspace the Russians had nominally controlled. Um, so, you know, they, there's still elements of them out there, but they, they don't, they're no longer really capable of, of mounting another Paris type attack in the view of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Now, where does ISIS linger on? It's mostly in Afghanistan, where it's right. ISIS-K, Khorasan group, Khorasan. and in other parts of, in Africa and elsewhere, uh, some of these are terrorist organizations just like the name, uh, but uh, there it's a concern. And in fact, in, in um, Afghanistan, uh, they're fighting the Taliban because <laughs> um, so um, they're out there. They're they're violent extremist groups are not going to be um, erased 
in the Middle East. It's important to keep your eye on them. Iranian militia groups are active in that part of the world. So as the Pentagon gets ready to issue publicly its national defense strategy with the emphasis on China's the facing threat, Russia's the acute threat, they still need a strategy to mitigate the risks in the um, Southwest Asia and in the Middle East. And CENTCOM is trying to do that now, but with greatly uh, diminished uh, resources uh, due to the Pentagon's decision to pivot towards great power competition. Hence, my argument is that what happened in Operation Parent Resolve is relevant for the future. We learned that small groups of American advisors lashed to uh, American air power and American intelligence can be the working with partners on the ground to do the main fighting in terms of ground combat can be an effective combination. And that model, which was applied on an extraordinary scale in Iraq and Syria in this campaign, can be adapted and applied in future conflicts in ungoverned spaces. So what happened in fighting ISIS is not purely of historical relevance. It has resonance for future conflicts um, against militant groups and perhaps even some against uh, peer competitors in cases where we want our partners to fight the competitors if they're nuclear armed and we don't want to engage against them ourselves. You know, that's hugely, hugely important. And I hope that listeners will reel back and listen to that more than once, what you just said, and hugely important. You know, we've we've mentioned, we've discussed that your your books are strong on history, strong analysis. You're taciturn when it comes to opinion. There's one in your conclusion. I'm going to read it. We can leave it there, or you can say a few more words. But in your conclusion, you say that you you, you, you have an opinion, and it is this, that officials in Washington should avoid bold promises they cannot keep, such as turning the page on an era of forever war. The concept is misleading in an age in which the actions of terrorist groups cannot be easily foreseen. Militant insurgencies are long-lasting, and the military actions Washington orders in response are carried out principally by local forces backed by U.S. advisors and air time uh, and air power and take time. Again, hugely important. That should be read over and over again. Anything you want to say to elaborate on that? I thought about that uh, long and hard before I wrote that, and I believe that. It's not necessarily a popular sentiment, but I think that, um, uh, yes, there's a a need to um, uh, redouble our efforts to think about uh, to reinforce deterrence against China. And certainly Russia has shown that it's an adversary. Uh, But um, the problems in in the the Middle East and elsewhere are not going to vanish simply because we decided to focus on something else. And and um, I think the forever war labeling uh, is uh, really is unfortunate because it it, it distorts um, really what's at stake and it inhibits us from from doing what needs to be done. And a lot of that can be done without sending thousands of American troops uh, back to the region. 
Precisely so. The book is Degrade and Destroy. It's by Michael R. Gordon, who is a brilliant reporter, has been for years, for decades. You should get the book. You should read the book. You should keep it on your bookshelf. Um, Michael, thank you again for being with us. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for your service in this regard. I'm glad we had an affiliation with you and thanks for the time. We went long today, but it was an important conversation and, I'm, and I, I found it fascinating. I think everybody else did. So thanks. Well, thank you. And I thank also FDD for, for its support because a part of this book was written while I was an author in residence in your, in your uh, think tank part at CNIS, but FDD certainly provided me important support and i'm grateful for that and we're proud to have done that with you and we'll stay in close touch and thanks to all of you for being with us today and being part of this conversation here on foreign policy thank you for listening to foreign policy if you found the program worthwhile we suggest you subscribe to foreign policy on itunes spotify google play stitcher or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.